Hello, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice, where we use books to help make sense of the environmental crisis. Today's guests are Dar Jamail and Stan Rushworth, the co-editors of the new book, We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth. This is a new collection from the new press that is brand new, uh, release date April 12th. Dar Jamail is a journalist living in Washington State. He's the author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. And Stan Rushworth is a teacher of Native American literature who lives in Northern California and the author of Sam Woods, American Healing, as well as other books. So what they did for this volume is the two of them interviewed uh, 20 different indigenous leaders, students, poets, activists, and others, all of them from Turtle Island, which is an indigenous name for the North American continent, and asked them about climate change, what they saw as some of the causes, uh, how they approach living in a rapidly changing world. Um, and I asked uh, Dar and Stan today about those conversations and what they learned Um they learned a lot, it turns out, and so did I reading the book. Uh, a lot of what we talk about today is going to be about the idea of kinship with the rest of humanity, with the rest of life, um, looking backward in time to our ancestors, looking forward in time to our descendants, um, and how, how our actions today will impact future generations, and how we comport ourselves today um, as people alive in a time of rapid ecological change. As uh, Dar and Stan point out, many indigenous groups on this continent are no stranger to uh, rapid ecological changes that came along with colonization, uh, and there is, I think, much to learn in the book, and hopefully much to learn in this conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider signing up for my free weekly newsletter. Uh, this will just give you each new episode in your email inbox. It will also sometimes share something good that I read that week uh, and updates on our Storytelling Animals book club. Um, our next meeting is in two weeks, Tuesday, April 26th at 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern, to discuss uh, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, a really classic and influential uh, book in the environmental movement that discusses the impact of DDT and pesticides. Um, if you wish to join this, uh, if you wish to join this meeting, there are two ways to do that. The first is just to sign up for that weekly email newsletter. The link is in the episode description, and then let me know, and I'll make sure you get the Zoom link for the Silent Spring Book Club discussion. Um, the other way to join the book club is to you can sign up at my Patreon page. Uh, for a, a monthly fee, you can join not only our Silent Spring book club, but all future monthly book club discussions, including uh, in May when we're going to be discussing the fifth season by N.K. Jemison. Okay, on to the interview. Stan Rushworth and Dar Jamail, the editors of We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth. Uh, Stan and Dar, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good to thanks be with you, Dayton. Thanks for having us. So I'm curious um, how, how you both became interested in climate change in general, 
and uh, indigenous responses to climate change in particular, and, and maybe how you came to work on this book together. So Stan, can we start with you? Sure. Um, well, I'm coming in, I'm in my 79th year now, and I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, in the foothills of Sierras, and uh, over my entire lifetime, I watched uh, flocks of blackbirds uh, that were probably a thousand birds strong, uh, diminished down now today to maybe being at the most 20 birds together. So just by uh, looking at the environment around, okay, and in my uh, focus as a Native American literature teacher and in uh, my proximity to an involvement with Native communities over the years, uh, it, you know, I've heard people like Philip Deere and uh, Jake Swamp and uh, Thomas Bunyakia and just countless others talking over and over and over again. Thomas Bunyaki started in the 1940s saying, you know, we're not going in a good direction and this is all going to go south. It's all going to really uh, create major, major problems. So in the Native community, this is absolutely nothing new. Environmental degradation uh, has been described, if you go back in the literature, right since first contact. And for for me, I used to live in Alaska, and I uh, wasn't really paying attention to the climate crisis until I moved up there and was doing a lot of mountaineering and was watching dramatic shifts happening before my very eyes back from the mid nineties on for about 10 years, watching glaciers retreat year after year, going to the same place over and over and watching these dramatic shifts and other dramatic uh, weather pattern shifts in Alaska, like not having snow on the ground during Christmas in Anchorage uh, was becoming not uncommon when I was up there. And, and, uh, then I'd started working as a journalist a little while after that. And uh, basically because of that experience, got on the climate beat and started covering it, covering it really closely for about 10 years and wrote a book on the topic called the end of ice bearing witness and finding meaning in the path of climate disruption. And uh, so got all the science under my belt uh, after having really become alarmingly aware of the topic by just like what Stan said, watching it unfold in front of my very eyes, which is an experience I think probably most people are having now. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you interview, I believe, about about 20 different uh, people, um, from from activists to poets to uh, elders to politicians or uh, within the Indigenous community. Um, how did you... How did you sort of assemble the list of of who you wanted to speak with, and how did you approach these interviews? Well, uh, in many cases, for me, there are people, uh, associates of mine, uh, friends, uh, students of mine, like Raquel Ramirez uh, was a student, uh, Edgar Ibarra was a student of mine, Greg Castro, uh, was uh, uh, an activist, 
leader of a Native community here in the San Francisco Bay Area who came to my class, has come to my classes for many years. And before him was his mentor, uh, Daryl Babe Wilson, who he mentions in the interview. So for me, a lot of it was personal connection. Dr. Kyle White, I heard speak up at the University of California, Santa Cruz, talking about uh, environmental justice and uh, kinship relations. And I was really struck by what he had to say. And and so we reached, we reached out uh, uh, because of these folks, because we can hear them, could hear them speaking. And, you know, I just want to back up a little bit to your first question, because I think it relates here. When the end of the ice came out, uh, before that came out, Dar and I established uh, a really close friendship. And so I was going to his presentations and in a couple of them, uh, with great numbers of people there, I was struck as Dar was, I can't speak for him completely, but we discussed this after afterwards, that people were saying things like, oh, it's unconscionable to have children in today's world. And there's this kind of woe is me and uh, attitude. And at one presentation, there were like about 900 people and the people around me, as I was listening to them, were saying, oh, this is so depressing. I don't want to know this, so on and so forth. So there's a certain kind of denial and, and nihilism almost uh, coming up. And it really made me angry, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm listening to a whole bunch of other folks who are dealing with major uh, catastrophical uh, environmental change if we're willing to to see social change and if we're willing to look at genocide as an environmental change and how you respond to you know uh, like here in California how you respond to a 95 percent uh, population reduction in one generation at the end of the 19th century and these folks are still here still working still meeting the challenges and and I and I said to Dara, I said, man, if you want to find out how to deal with this kind of major change, talk to a Native person, you know? And mm -hmm. and so we went, oh, okay, let's talk to a whole bunch of Native people. So that's that's the genesis of the book from, from my perspective. Uh, how about you, Dara? Right. Uh, very similar and even, I think, more personal for me because I got politicized a little bit later in life and, and really wasn't paying attention to what was happening on the planet. And so I was one of those people that when I became intimately familiar with the climate crisis and started particularly reporting on it closely as a journalist and writing uh, The End of Ice and going around the world and seeing how dramatic the situation was, um, I was in a place of despair also and just uh, didn't know what to do with the the fear, the anger, the pain um, and everything that was coming up. And um, and then talking with Stan about all this and, and reading more and more also about how indigenous communities, you know, if we want to talk about how do you adapt to a, abrupt climate change? Well, when you take uh, the Chiricahua Apache people from 
southern New Mexico and put them in Florida, uh, as happened uh, by the U.S. government, uh, that's abrupt climate change. And uh, a whole lot of them died in the process. Uh, and then a whole lot of them survived and they're still here today. So I realized, you know, it probably makes a lot of sense to talk to those folks because if we want to talk about surviving abrupt climate change and surviving genocide and a government that's attempting to erase you, uh, I think they have a lot to say and a lot to teach me. And so it felt like a real honor and a privilege for me, as well as getting a whole lot of soul medicine that I didn't even know that I needed to get to interview these people with Stan and hear and learn from their experience and their wisdom and uh, working on the book in that capacity has literally changed my life. And, and, and I want to add mine too, you know, uh, because even though I've, I've heard a lot of these uh, folks talking and writing and so on and so forth, putting this collection together uh, for me was, uh, I don't know how to put it, but, but it's, it's like a really, really deep, uh, knowing, you know, something, something beneath all the noise of what we call the civilization, some kind of, it, it's given me a tremendous amount of calm, a tremendous amount of thoughtfulness. Uh, it's, it's been a very healing, healing process for me. And, uh, it's my hope, and this is something Dar and I have talked a lot that about is that the book will provide people with a really broad range of tools from from looking at histo from historical knowledge to uh, uh, philosophical tools to emotional tools uh, spiritual tools uh, even you know very very physical day-to-day -day, uh, tools uh, rather than throwing one's hands up in the air about this or throwing a lot of blame and putting your focus there. It's, it's really a, a practical, very complex tool, or not, not really a guide in a sense, because everybody kind of wants to look at TEK and form some kind of formula out of it, but it doesn't work that way. As, as Kyle White puts, puts it over and over, it's about kinship, it's about relationships, and that's what this, that's what this book is about. Mm -hmm. You mentioned TEK, and that's traditional ecological knowledge. Is that right? Yes. So yeah, I'm. I want to go off on a couple themes you you brought up already. Um, maybe I'll start with one of the places you started, which is the idea that a lot of people are in a place of great despair or feeling like there's no path forward. Um, and one really striking idea that comes up uh, in a couple places in the book, I think. First, in the interview with Greg Castro, who you mentioned, uh, who's the formal tribal chair of the Salinan people, is, is the idea that whether or not our actions are, you know, successful as we intend them to be. Um, the, later, the poet Natalie Diaz, who you talked to, uses the phrase, no matter the outcome. Um, so no matter the outcome, that we still have this responsibility and even a sacred duty and obligation to give back to the world, whether that is through trying our best to fight climate change or, or in, in Greg's case, uh, defend indigenous cultures and sacred sites um, or whatever else that looks like. So why is this idea of no matter the outcome so important? 
you know, this is a, a really important point. And for me, uh, it was one of the first huge pieces of medicine that, that came to me working on this book. And it, and it really actually started, uh, it was a theme that started from a, a conversation that Stan and I had when, and it's how I ended literally the end of ice. Cause I finished that book on what to do with all of this, it, you know, devastating information about what's happening to the planet. And, um, he shared with me something that, uh, Daryl Babe Wilson had shared with him, which was, uh, teaching me that, you know, settler colonial culture, uh, that we live in teaches us that we have rights. What are my rights? You know, and there's a lot of righteousness <laughs> around that. And, uh, whereas, uh, uh, so many indigenous cultures teach that we're born with two primary obligations, one to, uh, serve the earth and, and uh, the other to serve future generations of all species. And so if, if I'm, if my ontology is based on what are my rights, I'm going to behave very, very differently. And we see this across the political spectrum today, uh, as opposed to if, if I'm looking at, okay, what are my sacred obligations to the planet and to future generations, then I have my work cut out for me. And it's a very different approach for me. Uh, I'm not going out trying to save the world. I'm not going out trying to save or, or change what other people are thinking uh, but I am going out in a spirit of service to do what I can to help the planet and to help future generations of all species. And so, uh, I, that was a dramatic shift in my perspective. And, and, and from that, it really, you know, that, that informed the book. And, you know, when, when we interviewed Natalie Diaz and she talked about that, you know, no matter the outcome, you know, another thing that I, I learned from conversations with Stan on this topic was, uh, it's all about how, how am I going to comport myself? Uh, if this is, you know, if human beings cease to exist in a hundred years because things get so bad on this planet, is that, does that mean I'm just going to throw my hands up and not go out and try to be a service and just go try to make money and be a, a you know, material, hyper materialistic, like dominant culture tells us to do? Or it comes down to what kind of person do I want to be and how am I going to choose to comport myself during this crisis? Because things are only going to intensify uh, domestic politics, climate crisis, economically, whatever perspective I want to look at it from. But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, am I going to try to serve people? Am I going to try to take care of people in my community? Am I going to try to be a good, upstanding member of my community? or not, it really comes down to that. And, and again, that's, you know, things that I've learned watching uh, indigenous people that we speak with and reading uh, a lot of history about how did indigenous people get through uh, this horrific genocide uh, against them by the federal government. And uh, that continues, uh, it's embedded within dominant culture, how do you survive that? And there's a whole lot of lessons to be learned. And again, that's why I, I, I am, I feel humbled to have gotten to be part of the creation of, of this book and, and hearing all these different voices talk about, well, uh, not just how do you survive, but how are we going to comport ourselves? Well, yeah, I'm sure glad you started with that, Dark, because that's beautifully put. Thank you. And, uh, you know, as you're, talking and thinking of something I 
uh, saw Kenyon Sayers Roods say the other day, and uh, who is in the book, and uh, she said that she feels like she's in the process of learning how to be a good ancestor. Okay, and it's it, she points out, you know, she said, you know, because I'm indigenous doesn't mean I'm born with this vast body of knowledge. She said, you know, this is very, very difficult. I'm constantly learning. You know, I live in a colonial society, and so I'm constantly bombarded with everything. So uh, it's not like there's like a set body of knowledge that every indigenous person all of a sudden has by virtue of their birth. You know, this is all a learning process for everyone. And, and reconstituting indigenous values is, is, a, is a huge task, okay? I think people look at it from the outside and make a lot of assumptions that just aren't true. And, uh, you know, this kind of comes back to the idea of, like, you know, what are our obligations again? And, you know, I want to go right back to what I started out by witnessing in one of uh, dark presentations from the end of ice, uh, you know, uh, a couple people in the front row in the Q&A really just self-righteously saying it's unconscionable to have children in today's world. And I'm sitting next to a young woman that's got a four-year-old. All right. Where's the, where's the love in that? Where's the care mm -hmm. in that? Where's the kinship mm -hmm. in that? And, and, and how those, that couple in the front row are comporting themselves does us no good. And then what is that saying to that young mother? How does she then comport herself? She has an obligation to not cross the love of life in that child, okay? So how do we do this? There's no simple answer. Let's, uh, you can't go out and say, well, let's all become indigenous people well, John Trudell says, you know, we're all indigenous to somewhere. And a lot of people take that on a really shallow level. But what John followed it up uh, with is by saying that the thing is, you have to figure out what that means, what you're going to do about it, and how you're going to carry yourself. So mm. I hope that answers your question, David. It does. And I, uh, I also want to note that one of the things that's kind of refreshing in the book is that there are clearly a few lines of questioning that you want to pursue with everyone, but that also you just kind of let them lead the conversations where they want to go, the people you interview. So I guess I also want to extend that invitation to you that if you ever want to go in a slightly different direction, feel free to do so. But um, yeah, you've, you've opened up a lot of different issues that I'd wanted to talk about. Um, really that I think that's the strongest thing that came through to me from the book is this theme of reciprocity versus rights, right? The, the contrast between sort of an individualistic idea of, of what am I owed versus what, what do I owe to, to other humans, to the rest of life, to future generations. Uh, and, you know, what are those relationships? Um, and what does it mean to be, in reciprocal relationships and relationships of kinship. Um, so 
Yeah, well, again, in, in that great Castro interview, he, he brings up the idea that our, our dominant culture um, is is very individually self-centered um, and, and also human-centered, whereas indigenous societies have often approached things more both more collectively within the human and also with concern for other species as well. Um, I guess maybe can you talk a little more about what the why it's important to approach these issues from a place of collectivity and in particular kinship uh, with the rest of the earth? Well, every, every well, actually, I was going to say just about every uh, indigenous culture that I've run across, uh, but I, I should probably modify it. Well, no, I spent a bunch of time in Central America, so I'm not 100% sure. But every indigenous culture I've run across here on Turtle Island has an expression somewhat akin to uh, or directly akin to the expression uh, all my relations or with all things I'm related. Okay. And so, and, and a lot of elders that I've had the honor to, to get to know and speak with over the years. Uh, have told me that uh, that their languages uh, before colonization uh, very often didn't even have a word for I. So everything was related to in a collective. So, you know, it's a different ontology. It's a different way of coming into the world. And this, of course, is something that uh, Greg talks about, the... the uh, the difficulty for everyone to relearn that when you're when you're kind of uh, absolutely surrounded by a whole other ontology. Uh, uh, Darcy McNichol, who started one of the first Pan-Indian organizations, uh, you know, a long time ago in the 1940s, uh, you know, deals with this in a novel literally called The Surrounded. That's the title of the book. Great, great, great book. So, you know, the teachings really all say that we're completely interconnected to the point where a lot of people say that, you know, it almost becomes a cliche, but it's, it's a far deeper exercise than a cliche or something simply to say. So in the native societies that, that I've been involved with over the years, it's a prayer and it's a statement and it's, it's, uh, it implies obligations. It implies kinship. Uh, it is an act of kinship in the saying of it. And I would suspect that Natalie would back me up on that because words have power. You know, how we see it is, is what we end up living is the message of all my relations. Well, on that okay. note, Stan, I, uh, want to actually ask you just to talk a little bit about uh, the title of the book, because it was really you were, that came to you um, to, to use this uh, John Trudell phrase as the title. And it, it feels very directly linked to exactly what you were just talking about. And maybe it's just another way to kind of put a little bit differently what you were saying, but Stan, if you would talk about why, um, why this title came to you, which I, 
I absolutely love the title, and I think it so perfectly encapsulates everything in the book and everything you were just talking about. Would you, would maybe, uh, if you would talk a little bit about that too? Sure. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of what I saw Canyon saying in a film the other day, her and Greg working together in this film, uh, saying, uh, you know, I'm an ancestor in training. And this is so beautiful because, and it, and it ties into Kyle White's points about measuring time in terms of uh, kinship relations, you know, rather than being on clock time, uh, you look at time in what he calls deep time, okay? So if deep time goes, 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 I mean, goes thousands upon thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of years ago, okay, where he talks about measuring time in terms of when kinship was working and when kinship was not working and when there was kinship or not. So what John is saying here is very similar to Greg and pretty much everybody in the book, that where we are here in this moment, we have obligations that go back into the past as far as we can imagine to the ancestors who have made incredible sacrifices. Just even if we look at the last hundred years, you know, we look at the sacrifices of so many recent ancestors who did what they did to keep the teachings, uh, to keep the cultures alive in the face of, of, of uh, forced external eradication of the cultures, of the religions. People don't even know, most people don't even know that the uh, indigenous people couldn't pray their own way here in this country legally until 1978. So the activists that 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 had to face up to all of that faced tremendous amount of persecution. Then you go back into uh, the 1800s and here in California, the slaughter that came uh, from 1849. You know, I mean, we have a football team named the 49ers, right? And those are the people that. that that concentrated on absconding with native land and eliminating native culture in a very concentrated way. So the ancestors there in that period who held on to the culture, held on to the teachings or what Greg talks about is the original teachings, which is about our obligations to care for the land, the animals and each other, or right, in equal measure. And then going way back, going back pre-colonial times, all the teachings, all the cultural traits, all the interrelationships that go back as far as you can possibly imagine. We have in this moment, this is what John is saying, in this moment, we have an obligation to take into consideration everything they have done to create the world that we, to help us live in the world that we're living in today. So, the concomitant obligation is that this is what Canyon's talking about, learning to be good ancestors. We have to imagine as far into the future as we can possibly, as the human mind can possibly imagine that what we do today creates what is going to happen so far down the line. We, it's like just a step beyond what the human mind can imagine. So we have obligations forward and backward in time. That pretty much puts us uh, as being the middle of forever, not only in the middle of forever, but if you put 
the, uh, all my relations together with with John's passage here, we are at the middle of forever. I think that's pretty clear, right? We are this. We are creating this. And that's our obligation to see and to hold to it, to stand to. This is this is the message that that I get from all the folks uh, in this book. And I find it to be a tremendously satisfying uh, ontology, if you want to call it that. I, 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 to me, it's a tremendously satisfying and, uh, sense of being connected to the whole of time and space. You know, uh, I like it. And, and if people are, are kind of coming from, you know, a me, me, me standpoint all the time, it might be scary to feel that many obligations, but it really makes the mind and the heart and the body just so much stronger and and so much broader okay than 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 what the, the current quote unquote civilization is offering to us which we have plenty of evidence uh, is not working well and you you know dayton uh, i want to just share a really good tangible like physical example of that process that stam just articulated so perfectly so the first interview in the book is with uh uh, she was then president of the Quinault tribe, uh, Fawn Sharp, who uh, is now vice president of that tribe. Uh, it's out on the west coast of Washington State, nearby where I live. And she's now still president of the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, and uh, when she was elected president of the tribe, she knew that her first task was to start situating the tribe to adjust and adapt to the climate crisis that's upon us. Uh, the reservation is right on the coast, right at sea level. And uh, one of the first things she did was start moving the village, making plans to move the village uh, to over a hundred feet elevation in the hills up above where they currently were. And so land was cleared, a road was put in, the medical center was moved up there, and they're actively now in the process of slowly moving everything up there from the homes where the elders live to village shops to you name it, basically all of the infrastructure. And now uh, that's because President sharp and uh people in the tribe are living as though they are the middle of forever contrasted with the town where i live and i i note this in the chapter which is a great place to live and there's a lot of fantastic people here doing fantastic work but the best this is a very very also progressive town i think in the 2016 primaries it went like some of the precincts went like 90 percent for bernie sanders so that gives you an idea um and and yet the best thing that this city council could do in regards to the climate crisis and you know this is a town heavily populated with people that understand we are in a major climate crisis uh and yet the best thing the city council could do was dump millions of dollars into an infrastructure project that uh redid the water and electrical infrastructure underneath the main street of downtown which is at six feet elevation it's literally right up against the water so um, to put it uh, very bluntly, which of those two responses do you think is a mindful, heartfelt, adequate response to the climate crisis that is thinking about future generations? Right. I'm, I'm glad you told that story because I think, you know, I, I read a lot about climate change and 
people on on the left or socialists or Bernie supporters are often much more focused on the kind of material or, or structural or changes that need to be made, uh, and which obviously is very important, um, but not necessarily like changes in our mindset or changes in how we view the world or, re- or relate to each other and, and our fellow beings uh, are, are kind of secondary at best a lot of the time. Um, but it seems to me that the two are connected, right? That we aren't going to make the like the physical material changes that we need to make, such as you know moving some of our communities inland, uh, without without changing how we how we look at future generations of of humans or of other species, or how we look at each other. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very glad you told that anecdote. Um, another interview. Uh, you did is with uh, the Honorable Ron W. Good. Um, he, uh, and you can correct me on the details if you need to, but he um, he helps lead these uh, burnings in California, um, which, you know, many Californians know that we have lots of wildfires that can be not great, um, but uh, Indigenous people living there for a very long time have had more controlled burnings that are actually good for the land um, and those who live there. And Ron, who, who you interviewed, does lead some of those um, attempts to, to, to bring that back. Um, so he talks about traditional ecological knowledge, which you mentioned earlier, um, but says that sort of if contemporary scientists are attempting to draw on that TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, that it's not enough just to say, oh, like they burnt here and there for this long. Um, but also um, there, there should be an attempt to understand and adopt some aspects of the indigenous philosophies that we've been talking about. The idea that, and I'm quoting or at least paraphrasing, that the land, of the, the land has a spirit and everything has the same spirit and everything out there is my relative. That's what he says. And, and that humans have no right to dominion over wildlife and, and over the land and over other species, which... Um, certain religions or even secular worldviews in the, in the dominant culture teach. Um, so my question here is, you you mentioned that it's it's hard for people who are raised in, in kind of the me, me, me dominant culture to adopt this worldview. And, and one of the interviews, someone, I forget if it's one of you or someone you speak to, but points to masks as an example of something that's about an obligation to the people around you that uh, pe- some people in the U.S. anyway a minority, but some people didn't um, <laughs> weren't very willing to accept that obligation. Um, so, how can how can people who aren't raised either aren't raised within indigenous cultures and also are raised within a worldview that's so different and so self centered um, come to actually adopt this these views in a way that aren't that isn't superficial? And that isn't just kind of like, you know, cultural appropriation claiming to be, oh, I, I think like an indigenous person now, but not actually changing anything. Well, I could give a very short answer. They could pick up this book and read it. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and that's the, that's the purpose of the book. And, you know, the book, the book is really an, an offering. Uh, 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 it's done in the spirit of, of, of helping, you know, helping people do precisely that. And that's why it's so many different people, you know, uh, 
uh, Raquel Ramirez is just absolutely brilliant in here. She's 18 years old when uh, we interviewed her, and she deals precisely uh, with with uh, with what you're talking about, you know. And she says, "What's going on?" And this is the quote: "What's going on in the environment and in so much of the world is a reflection of personal wounds that have not been healed." for all marginalized communities, as well as for non-marginalized communities. We're all carrying the wounds of our ancestors, and this can be seen in our actions and in our thoughts, okay? Personal healing in this arena is our chance to be able to make some lasting change on this world. There's so much pain, and there's so much suffering, and people choosing to remain ignorant to their own pains choosing to remain in ignorance of everything as a result. And then our last line on this paragraph is, we all need to go to therapy as a collective nation. She laughs, then adds emphatically, something needs to change with no smile at all. Okay? So right. this book is an offering, and, and her voice is an offering from an 18-year-old uh, young woman's, uh, young indigenous woman's perspective. You know, it's not about expertise. It's, 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 it's about the desire uh, to learn, you know, the desire to, to look in one's own communities and, and see what indigenous folks are struggling with. Just look at your educational institutions and ask if we're really dealing with the truth in history. This is what Canyon Sayers Roots is talking about. And her mother, uh, Canyon uh, uh, Anne Marie Sayers, is a local elder, and she's been saying this for the last 50 years here. You know, deal with truth in history. And the local schools continue to not include indigenous curriculum. That's the responsibility of everyone to look at the history, to see what's happened here, and to be accountable to it. It's not about blame or anything. It's about, it's about you know, how can we be accountable? You know, how can we integrate everything that's happened as far back as we can imagine? And further, uh, how, is, how can we be accountable to realizing how that's created uh, the moment we're in now, you know, and what, and what that's going to create for the future. So you have to have the will. You really have to have the will. There is no secret. There is no formula. It's, as Canyon says, it's the hard work and the willingness to do the hard work. This book is an offering uh, in that direction, okay? And, and alongside that, I think the the another strength of the book is that it, everyone in it is sharing their direct personal experience and, and thinking and perceptions. And I think like what Stan said, just being exposed to this information and it, it is our obligation to know the truth about what happened on this continent to uh, indigenous people and what continues to happen to them. And alongside those hard truths, uh, many, many examples in the book of, uh, what living in right relationship to the land and each other really looks like. And 
Um, you mentioned Ron Good uh, uh, of the North Fork Mono, who is doing the cultural burns uh, year round uh, in California. And I, I want to read the, the, the pull quote from that I, I lead the chapter with, because I think it gives people a really good idea of, uh, you know, another part of this where he says he's talking about what they do when they go out before they actually start a cultural burn. And he says, the first thing we do is our ceremonial blessing ceremony for our work. We want to connect to the land, want to connect to the spirits of the land. We want them to know why we're here. They don't care who I am or what my name is. They don't care where I come from. They want to know why I'm here and what I plan to do. Just because you're Indian, that doesn't mean you know what the hell you're doing. So we get questioned by the spirits. Then you sing a good song. Sometimes you just sing the song and then you don't go anywhere. It doesn't travel. It's dead. It's dead because either everything's absorbing it, or they're just letting you sing by yourself. You sing two or three verses, and pretty soon here comes butterfly. Here comes dragonfly. Spider comes out of his hole to start listening. Birds come by your third verse. They're chirping with you. And now the trees are hearing your voice. By the time you're done, your voice is traveling throughout the forest or over the land, because now they're accepting you. Now they're hearing why you're here. They understand. So now you're going to be helped by them. This is being connected. I want to add to that, Dave. Uh, one of my elders and I talk about this all the time, you know, uh, and I call him my elder because of my association with him. And, it, and it's like, he says, you know, the will is, if the will is there, it can be done. And there are literally, he keeps pointing out to me, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of books uh, written by Native people about uh, precisely what we're talking about that date back as far back as, as you can go. And, and, and there are thousands upon thousands of Native communities all over the place here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Man, I don't even—I don't even—I don't even know how many, but they're everywhere here. And so, if people want to learn, or if they want to find out any of this information from an indigenous standpoint, there are plenty of folks around, and plenty of willingness to share their struggles uh, and, and to work together, you know, on this. So, it comes back to the will, and. I, I think that ties into what uh, uh, Chairman Good is talking about, too. It's something within you have to be willing to step forward with. And you have to be willing to put in the time. You know, you have to be willing, willing to put in the time and the money in terms of education and, and so on. Dar, I want to ask you about one of the other questions that um, you ask in several of the interviews, which is just kind of about what different uh, people see as the causes of the climate crisis. I think one person says greed and lack of community. Um, and in one of the interviews that, that you wrote up, um, you talk about kind of the combination of a lack of connection to the land and um, the very idea of, and how this is related to the very idea of private property and the idea that land is something we can own and exclude others from. Um, and, and you say that it, it seems that this lack of connection uh, is, is to you the fundamental cause of the climate crisis and actually made the crisis inevitable once privatization became nearly ubiquitous. 
Um, can you talk a little bit how you came to that conclusion? Well, I, I started seeing it before I was really informed by the different thinking that Stan just talked about that we've been talking about during the interview and that's throughout the book of the kinship and the connection and that we are part of uh, Mother Earth and we're not separate from and how we treat ourselves is how we treat the Earth and how we treat the Earth is how we treat ourselves. And I that's what came, you know, through the book and through these interviews and having lengthy conversations with Stan over these last years. And, and, and that kind of backfilled all of what I was seeing when I was going around uh, reporting on the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico to then uh, go into the front lines of climate crisis, places like the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and glaciers in Alaska and the Amazon rainforest, et cetera. And seeing around the world, uh, Western culture and, and cultures, industrialized cultures, this, the dominion over, uh, separation from that, that it was so clear to me that thinking you can just treat the earth a certain way and somehow that's not going to affect you is literally insane. You know, that to think that we can go on, uh, just capitalism is the perfect example the think that we can just use the earth and chew it up and spit it out and keep digging and mining and drilling and pumping and all of this and think that somehow that's not going to affect us, let alone how just grossly immoral uh, it is to do. And, and it, and it's, it's a really, it's, it's a, a spiritual violence as well. Uh, and, and I under, was understanding all of that intellectually, but then uh, working on the book and talking with all these different people in the book and, you know, all the conversations Stan and I had going through the book because we would, uh, you know, we took turns composing each interview. And then each time one of us had a draft, we would send it to the other person to edit and get feedback. And um, we, we realized that at, upon finishing the book that we've, in general, if you, if you factor in all those different editings and going back and forth and then the editings we did with the publisher that we've read this book 12 times a piece. And each time we've read it, it this stuff just sinks in again and again, and again. And I'm going to read it again real soon, uh, because we're in the midst of doing interviews and giving presentations because every time I read these, these compositions of these interviews with these folks in the book, as well as Stan's uh, preface and his early warnings, which lead the book, all of this seeps in deeper and deeper into my thinking, into my heart. And, uh, it really just helps me understand that, you know, this is what's happening to the planet is this, the fundamental disconnection and why, you know, people are treating the earth as though it's an other, as though it's a resource, as though, you know, somehow we can control it or manipulate it or use it for our own benefit. And that that's totally insane. And, you know, cause if we really look out and see that, you know, these trees are living beings with a, their own consciousness and, uh, then there's the rock people and the four-leggeds and the winged ones and that we're all related to these people, I'm going to behave very, very differently in the world if I have that in my mind and my heart as opposed to, oh, I just um, am hungry. I'm going to go just kill something and eat it without you know any kind of proper understanding of what that really means to 
to that being, or, you know, I'm just going to behave literally differently. And I think, you know, we see, you know, Daryl Babe Wilson that Stan and I both mentioned earlier, he, he talked about us being, you know, it's a battle of the thinkings. And, you know, if one mindset thinks we're separate from the earth and it's the resource and we can just use it however we want, that's, that's a polar opposite of, no, we're all in kinship and we're all related and, and how I walk upon, upon the earth is going to directly affect my own life. Uh, and, and so it's, it's just really, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm wandering a bit in my explanation, but it's just been, um, you know, it's a very fluid ongoing process. And, and the more I, I have worked on this book and then now talking about it again and, and, uh, rereading parts of it already in preparation for interviews, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper for me. And, and I, I feel that now when I go outside, I've, I've always been, you know, very active outdoors and really love mountain climbing. And, and, uh, you know, I go out there now outside and I, I have a very, very different experience than I did before I started, uh, learning about all of this and working on this project and having long conversations with Stan. Can I add to that? Of course. Go ahead. Um, you know, I think a lot of people may, uh, take from some of the things Dara's saying here, which I think are absolutely spot on, that this is about adopting uh, a spiritual relationship that they then take over into some kind of sense of mysticism. And I think what's really important is to not kind of mystify, uh, you know, you know, Dar, Dar does the work and this book and everything about his life is the evidence to know what he's talking about when he talks about a spiritual framework, okay? And so I kind of want to maybe warn people not to take that over into like Native mystic, Native American mysticism or something because that's that's a kind of a commodification of something that can't be commodified. And And I think it's really important to realize that this uh, worldview is probably the most logical uh, worldview that we can ever uh, draw from, okay? And and it's, it's, you know, you can only soil the bed, to put it in, you know, polite terms. You can only soil the bed so long before you find yourself uh you know, living entirely in that soil. So, uh, if you know what I mean, you know, I'm being polite in my terminology here, right? But it's simple logic. And this is, this <laughs> is what, uh, uh, you know, uh, indigenous folks have been saying for a very, very long time, you know, turn of the century when they, uh, people, you know, this is, this is why the education is so darn important, you know, because this is all there, uh, uh, indigenous folks have been saying it when the when the energy companies went around at the turn of the, the century, like 1900, looking to get, uh, you know, looking to mine and do all these things. And the elders who at that time, uh, the elder speakers were, were, many of them were women, the grandmothers, and they said it's not right in the right way to uh, relate to Mother Earth. And here's the phrase, there will be consequences. 
Okay, there will be consequences. You know, it's kind of like, hello. So I just want to bring logic in, into this uh, discussion here as well and kind of alert people to the fact that this is all, you know, some of the elders that would had come to my class, like Henry Tyler and Seymour Black Crow, when my students say, well, what do we do about this? And we're talking about 15, 20 years ago, Uncle Henry and Sila would both point to their, their foreheads with their finger and say, think about it, okay? Think about it. You have a mind, think about it. Follow the uh, fourth grade rule for uh, crossing the street. Stop, look, and listen. Think about it. So, <clears throat> I hope that helps that discussion. Yeah, I think it does. So the last the last question that I had for you, I think segues nicely from that. I this came to me when I was reading the interview you did with um, Corina Gould. They talk about the need to live in reciprocity with each other and this earth. Uh, that means everything from creating community gardens to share food with neighbors, to planting flowers that will be attractive to pollinator insects. Um, use the phrase, having a relationship with even the smallest little beans. Um, so I think this could be a way to maybe move from something that sounds more mystical or, or abstract to you know a, an actual way of being in the world. Um, and so in your own lives, how do you seek to to cultivate um, this reciprocity uh, with with other humans and the rest of the earth? And and what what advice or thoughts would you have for people who either listen to this podcast or read the book and are are moved by the ideas you present, but not sure about, you know how to move forward and, and implement them in their own lives? Well, I I know for me, literally in a very practical, pragmatic way. It's uh, it's um, kind of like picking up on the, what I mentioned earlier about when I go into the mountains or the wilderness. Now I I go with a much much deeper sense of awe, respect, and humility, and 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 then therefore have a very different experience out there. And and then at home where I live, I, I live in a middle of a forest and have a garden and chickens and you know, I, 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 uh, don't, I, I learned from example, talking about, um, the honorable Ron good doing cultural burning after that interview, I started behaving very differently on the land where I live and I go out and I start tending it in a very, very different way. And I, I don't chop down life trees. Uh, I, I take what is blown down in windstorms and, and then I feel responsible to take care of the forest bedding in there and keep it clear and tend it in a good way, you know? So I literally just taking some of the things I learned directly from that interview and applying them, um, right here where I live. And, and I think most of all, it's just being, uh, of service and being, a, a, a good member of the tiny little community right here where I live and being responsible and doing what I can to help other people and, and try to make their lives better. And, 
and, uh, and that applies to in my own family, being a good son, uh, being a good brother, uh, and, and, and with my partner, being a good partner and just, uh, being of service. It comes down to that. It, it comes down to, uh, my obligations and giving and being of service and not sitting around waiting for my rights to be fulfilled or, uh, being righteous and going out and trying to change someone else's mind about something. Uh, it's, it's kind of that similar to that old saying of work with your friends and don't fight your enemies. Uh, and just, it's, it's really as simple as that. And, and I think the core of it to me is just maintaining a proper, you know, I guess for me, if I had to boil it down, it'd be, you know, when I really understand my relationship to the planet and, and start to apply a lot of what I've learned working on this project and from my conversations with Stan, it's impossible to not have a deep sense of humility about my place and things. And, uh, that, uh, you know, there's just very few basic things that are my responsibilities to do. And, and I, I, I owe it to the people in my life to do those in as good a way as possible. And, uh, you know, especially with my place on the planet that, uh, that I get from these, all, every, all the teachings that were brought to me from these people we interviewed in the book, that there's just a whole lot of humility that goes with that. And, and, uh, the importance of listening and really, really listening to land and listening to other people. Uh, and then when I get, when I do get messages from the land, uh, then, uh, it's important for me to act on those too. Uh, not just to listen, but then to do what I'm told. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I was reading Raquel's interview this morning, and uh, she said that we have to have the courage to face the difficulties, both uh, within ourselves and coming to terms with all this, and outside of ourselves at the same time. We have to have that courage to face the difficulties. There is no e easy fix. Uh, it's it's a tremendous complexity, uh, uh, you know, a quite complex complex uh, we've created here. And you know, Ron Good uh, talks a lot about fire, but another part that 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 he talks about that uh, affected me when I first heard him at, at a gathering speak about this about 15 years ago, is one of the things that he's been doing is uh, restoring meadows uh, up in the Sierras, the Sierra Nevada near where he is. And these are meadows that have been completely overgrown with vegetation and they're no longer meadows. And in that process, when the rain comes, uh, the overgrowth of vegetation just sucks all the water away. And, uh, so everything downstream, uh, dries up. There's no water. So, uh, and water is, you know, as, as folks at Standing Rock will tell you, water is life. You know, water is life. And so what Ron does, he knows the technology, he knows the science of it, the native science of it that he talks about of which plants go down, how far with their root structures and take how much amount of water. And so those plants, as they, uh, as his folks uh, extract those plants and clean up the meadow, uh, the water comes back, okay? Because the soil is able to hold the water rather than 
it being sucked up into those plants and and going away. So as the water comes back, uh, the fish come back. All the animals that that uh, that live off those fish and the insects and uh, the birds and everything uh, comes alive again. And downstream, the people who live downstream and the animals that live downstream all have water and everything that comes from that. So this is a very complex technology. Okay, we can call it and. Uh, it's, it's, that's again, coming back to the practical thing. So ever since I heard, uh, Ron 15 years ago, uh, when I work in my garden and I, I look on the land that I, that I live on, uh, uh, I think of Ron, you know, and I think of the plants that I have there and make sure that I have plants that bring bees, right? That bring pollen, uh, live under a, a mountain uh it's called Toyotak, which means place that Mumblebee is originally called that. It now has a, a colonial name on it, but uh for thousands of years it was Toyotak, which which means that there's a technological awareness in the, the folks here uh before colonization that 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 pollen is a source of life. And so uh there's you what you plant where you live, even if you live in the city, you plant things that that will bring bees. Okay, so all of that is a tremendous joy to learn, you know. And and to begin that learning, we have to admit the consequences of our ignorance. You know, uh, I I have a I have a license plate if you as you drive up my driveway. And it's a, you know, it's like a California license plate hanging on the tree. So it's the first thing you read. And it's got a, 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 a picture of, of, of a native man there embossed on the metal. And, and it says, uh, uh, America, uh, love it or give it back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm in all serious there, serious to say it's about, it's about loving that land, about, uh, talking to it and listening, uh, to it. And, 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 you know, I'm glad you mentioned Corina because one of the things that I, I'm so profoundly moved by is, is the work that she's done in the San Francisco Bay Area for decades now. She describes how before, uh, colonization came, which, you know, wasn't until 1769 here, okay, with the Spanish. And then the Anglos didn't come, uh, or the Americans didn't come until, uh, you know, 1848 or so. So this is a very recent thing. And looking back, she's able to uh, talk about the abundance of everything that was here and 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 how the, the water systems and the sloughs and the animals and the people and all the various peoples california was reputedly the most uh inhabited uh, uh area what we now call california uh in native america uh some folks would argue with that but but, she, but what she's talking about is a whole lot of people getting along and taking care of each other. Now, they're not running around in tight egg going, oh, you know, peace and whatever. People have their issues. 
but they but they had formed social systems, which is a social systems that uh, that uh, were not based in destruction. Okay, that were born that were based in interrelationships, and so they had formed a tech they had formed social technologies, as one uh, Yokut's professor put it to me. You know. Uh, that we need to think of social systems and kinship relationships as a very sophisticated technologies that evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Okay, right here where I, I am right now, uh, you know, archaeologists admit to 15,000 years of habitation. And of course, the, the local native people tell you that it's far beyond that. It goes back to, to into, you know, concept pre prehistory way far back uh in what people call uh prehistory you know so within that Karina talks about how she has come back in to realize it in a form of abundance that's through years of going around and doing walks throughout the San Francisco Bay Area from Shell Mound to Shell Mound to Shell Mound, which are sacred sites uh, for her people, all right? And in that, she's created an awareness of all the surrounding people. And, and those surrounding people are now starting to assist in projects within the city of Oakland and, and surrounding the San Francisco Bay Area that deal with food, that deal with uh, caring for people, that deal with uh, uh, trying to break the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the pipelines into the prisons and all the things that come out of despair uh, and social degradation along with environmental degradation. They're the same thing. And so she's now experiencing an abundance that's about developing the, the, the proliferation, as Canyon puts it, the thrivance of native cultures working with non-native cultures in a really positive way. And I and I want I really want to emphasize how important that is, okay? Uh, because that's the juncture that we're at right now in history. We have to have to start uh working together. Okay. And this is what the folks early on in the book and early warnings are saying too. We have to start working together. Uh, and, and the methodology, methodology that Karina, I think, advocates for, I think is quite beautiful. It may simply think, it may be seen as, as a simplicity, but it's not. It's a very, very deep, uh, deeply complex thing. And she says, uh, this is her speaking. I think that if we focus on the kindness of people, we can get a lot done. Thank you. Um, is there, I think that's a good place to end, but is there any anything either of you want to add before we go? I think for me, no, I think Karina's words are just really what this book is about. It's, it's what we hope, it's what I hope, it's what we both hope. I can speak for Dar uh, there, you know, I'm sure you can mm -hmm. add to it better than I can, but we we feel this book as an as an act of kindness on the part of all the people who are in it. Certainly, their kindness towards us uh, in interviewing us, and certainly their kindness in uh, the depth of thought and consideration that they're giving to all the readers who who 
who may pick it up. So we're very, very grateful. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I can't add anything to that. Perfectly put. And just thanks a lot for uh, having us on, Dayton. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. And thank you both for joining me. It was a really wonderful book and a wonderful conversation. Um, that was Dar Jamail and Stan Rushworth. That was Dar Jamail and Stan Rushworth. The book is We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth. If you want to hear more about the book, uh, I'm including a link in the episode description to an event they did at Santa Clara University, um, speaking with some of the people they interviewed for the book, including a few that we mentioned today, including Karina Gould, uh, Greg Castro, and Raquel Ramirez. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please uh, you know, subscribe or follow the podcast, uh, send it to a friend who you think might enjoy it. Um, and consider supporting the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash storytelling pod. Excuse me. Uh, thanks so much. Have a good day. <laughs>